Hello, everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women, our cross-generational, cross-cultural conversation about leadership, power, gender, and social justice. I'm Ann Doyle. And happy International Women's Day today, March 8th, which is celebrated all over the world. And one of my favorite memories of International Women's Day was being invited to march through the streets of Port of Spain, the capital of the Caribbean country of Trinidad and Tobago. I was sent there by the U.S. State Department. Oh, there was music and media coverage and smiling people lining the streets and waving. And, you know, the feeling was so joyful that I remarked to Caribbean leader Hazel Brown, wow, Hazel, you certainly have a lot of support here. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, and, but when we first started this march about 10 years ago, they were throwing bottles and spoiled fruit at us. So we're making progress. Today in the United States, the Biden administration is marking this day by establishing a powerful gender policy council, which will report directly to the president with the goal of advancing gender equity in both domestic and foreign policy across the entire U.S. government. So the fight for gender and racial equity has come a long way, but we still have a very, very long way to go. So as part of our recognition of both Women's History Month and Black History Month, which was just celebrated in February, this week's episode is an interview with Madeleine Fekier, who was born in Haiti, fled to Montreal with her family as a child, and has risen to global leadership roles. It was my privilege to interview her for the Game Changers podcast of the International Women's Forum. And she shared with us her personal leadership story, as well as her passion and commitment to support equity and inclusion throughout the world. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to IWF Game Changers, a monthly conversation with some of the trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle, a member of the IWF Global Board and your host. So let's talk about life in leadership. Our featured guest today is Madeleine Fekier, the Corporate Credit Chief for Domtar Corporation, a global manufacturer of high-quality paper and hygiene products. And in addition to managing a $700 million worldwide portfolio, she serves on multiple boards and is an expert in risk management and complex international strategies. Born and raised in Haiti until college, she joins us now from Montreal, Quebec. Welcome, Madeleine. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to join you today. Well, as part of Black History Month, we are particularly interested in talking with you about your years of work related to addressing inclusion, diversity, equality, and accessibility challenges. And so let's begin about why you are so passionate about those issues and that very, very important work. And as you know, I was born in Haiti under a dictatorship of uh, Papa Doc. I spent my formative years under that di dictatorship until I started with my family migrating to Canada in the 60s. It's seven of us, five girls and two boys. 
My dad <laughs> used to tell my brothers, you are outnumbered, so you need to be on your best behavior. <laughs> I want a seven as well. I'll if bet you you're the big survive, sister. If you want to survive in this house. So I grew up in a totally different Haiti. The socioeconomic structures were still in place. We had a great life in Haiti, but three events uh, changed the course of, uh, of our lives. The first one was my father was an officer in the army. And the middle, the middle class of which uh, we were part of was under constant surveillance under the dictatorship. What people say, the company they keep, where they go, there was a failed kidnapping attempt under Baby Duck, the dictator's son. And then what follows was complete mayhem because we've seen mass incarceration, mass assassinations, and my, uh, on Fortunately, my father was released. And a couple of years later, the same thing happened again. So uh, that's when my parents started to uh, think it was the time to leave Haiti. Yeah. And of course, it yes. has not been a, uh, a very easy decision because I don't know, people who has not migrated to another country, don't know that feeling when you're leaving everything that you know behind and uh, to go to just jump into the unknown and, and start over again. So mm -hmm. I think those three events, my father's imprisonment and us leaving Haiti shaped the course of my, my journey. So, so they chose Canada. Yes. We've chosen Canada for different reasons. Uh, uh, my uncle from my father's side was already living in Montreal because as you know, Haiti is a French country and then we were looking for French, uh, French speaking place to go. And yes. uh, Canada was the first choice. So we did that. And, but also we've chosen Canada because of its character of a peaceful nation, open and tolerant a young nation with a bright future ahead of it. And I believe we made a, a winning choice in retrospect. When I look at uh, what is happening in the world today, there is no place I would rather be at the moment than Canada. Yes, well, you have come a very, very, very long way from a little girl growing up in, in a country under a dictatorship, your father imprisoned. So share with us a little bit more about your own leadership journey, which has taken you to incredible heights and really global responsibilities. Yeah, I believe it's all about values. I must give full credit to my parents let me tell you, and I have lived amongst heroes without knowing it. In retrospect, when I, when I think about my parents, because they are both now deceased, I'm like, oh my God, you know? We mm. were living with those two giants and we didn't realize that we were <laughs> living amongst giants, you know? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So they instill in us the love of self, the love of family, the love of others, and mostly the love of education. To never miss the opportunity to learn and to teach others. I believe that I was born to lead, you know, and I've always tell people that. Ever since I was a young girl, I was organizing my, um, my <laughs> class 
And at, at, at home, I had all the kids were meeting at my house as if we had a company <laughs> that we were running or something. Actually, I, uh, and I've mentioned that to many friends before, actually, I think I'm at my best when I'm leading, uh, but I'm also a great team player. I learned how to, uh, to project myself in the future, to visualize the journey, my journey, because vision, uh, I believe, is one of the keys to a successful path. You need to know where you're heading. And at an early age, I know that. I've also learned that opportunities are not to be missed mm. uh, unless they are- I love that. They are in conflict with my values because I will never compromise my values, you know, because I got those from my parents and to me, they are dear and close to my heart. I learned that we are the company we keep. Mm -hmm. Consequently, my network defines who I am. Therefore, I choose my friends and allies very carefully. I learned to build consensus and relationships around me. I also have the courage, and I think this is a quality of a great leader. You must have the courage to leave relationships behind if they are not working for you. And finally, I constantly assess. You have to measure. If you don't measure, you don't know where you're going. So I constantly assess and measure where I stand on that journey. I've worked in various industries, like you mentioned, and only I've worked only for public, publicly traded companies. It was a choice I, I made because I know they will take me, you know, to globally to work uh, at an international base. So, and because I love traveling and this was something that I wanted to do. Now, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned I'm the corporate credit chief at Domtar. I provide oversight and support on a global scale. I am also a member, an expert panel member of the Canadian Center for the Purpose of Corporation. For the next, we are hoping that for the next 10 to 15 years, we will help Canadian corporations shift their focus from shareholders to stakeholders. So all that shaped my leadership journey. And that's, that's what brought me to the Black Opportunity Fund. Tell us about the Black Opportunity Fund, which you and other leaders in Canada have just created. This is brand new, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's brand new. We created the Black Opportunity Fund for the Black community on the aftermath of Floyd's incident. And we know it was really bad in the United States. We are not at the same level in Canada, but to me, Racism is racism, systemic racism is systemic racism. So you, you cannot put a weight on, on it for one situation or another. So the fund is intended to support, not replace the many organizations that serve the black communities already. Uh, we have a 10 year growth target of over $1 billion. The Black, the Black Opportunity Fund is designed to be the largest fund 
in the world for the Black community, serving existing Canadian organizations and, and the new ones that will be created. It is more than an uh, endowment fund. The Black Opportunity Fund will have a significant transformative impact on Black communities all across Canada. So the, uh, the incentive for us, the drive for us, is to make sure that we lift people from poverty. Can you give us some specific examples of the kinds of ways that you are going to do that, the initiatives that you and the other leaders who have created this across Canada are imagining? Yeah. As you know, the pandemic has highlighted the economic exclusion situation of the Black communities across Canada. And it was when I was approached by Way Williams, he's the vice chairman of National Bank in Toronto, and Dennis Mitchell, who is the CEO of Starlight Capital, when they asked me to join forces to empower the Black communities through a different approach, I listened to them and I raised my hands right away. We of the opinion that it's time to make fundamental structural changes to deal with centuries of neglect and disadvantage. If we look at history in Canada, since 1784, systemic and anti-Black racism has pervaded Canada's social and economic structures, resulting in the marginalization of the Black communities. The Black communities in Canada lacks a lot of things. Access to education, access to higher education, access to employment, access to promotion, you know, and access to capital to buy and acquire property, grow their businesses, raise healthy, productive families in a, is a constant setback for Blacks in Canada. As an American, I draw on the history that we were always grew up with that, you know, American slaves escaped to Canada. You know, I'm based in Detroit. And once they were across the Detroit River to Windsor, they were free. And so you're telling me, yes, but once they got to Canada, things weren't so great either. Is that what you're saying? Well, they were free, but racism has been there. We didn't have slavery developed system as you had but we, we did have slaves in Canada as well, okay? Systemic racism is the same everywhere on the planet. And Floyd showed us that, you know, the whole planet almost burned immediately afterwards. I am a believer of compassion. I'm a great believer of empathy. And I seriously believe that people some people choose to be ignorant about systemic racism. What is there not to understand, you know? It has nothing to do with individuals, but rather with the institutions that uh, have not involved with their time. So this is what we are trying to, you know, correct. You've asked the question, with multiple economic decks continue to stack up against African-Americans. Well, really, if you're not educated, you really don't have a future because you cannot get a proper job to take care of yourself. And even when you get the proper job, it's rare that we are promoted, you know, to 
upper management. And if you don't acquire property, even if you have a business, you go to the bank, you have nothing to give to the bank as collaterals because you don't have properties. So it is like a chain of events. It's endless. People cannot get out of it. I want to come back to that in terms of the specifics about how you change the dynamics. But I also want to make it clear in the conversation that when you talk about the Floyd event, you are talking about the murder of yes. George Floyd at the hands of a police officer. Yes. That was witnessed, I suppose, because of social media that went around the world. Are you saying that that is a moment that has sort of opened up the opportunity to address issues that have been boiling, simmering, and now boiling for decades. Yes, totally, totally. And I can tell you, after the Floyd event, we've seen initiatives developing in Canada nationally that we've never seen before. Like the Black Opportunity Fund has been created immediately after that. The Black Initiative Network has been created immediately after that. So I think it has a ripple effect, beneficial ripple effect. And so now we, all those organizations have been created. We have behind us foundations. We have corporations behind us. We have the federal government behind us. And now is the time to really deploy all that we've been working, working on for the past eight months. We've seen a lot of, let's say, hashtag activism with people and corporations saying the right thing for a long time, mm -hmm. but it's a whole different thing to really start doing things that will address deep-seated change. We are embarking on a colossal project that will span future generations, okay, because it has never been done before. Therefore, we must work on all fronts. We must create partnerships with all stakeholders, you know? First, we need to start in education, in higher education. We have to work with the schools. We have to work with colleges, work with universities to prevent the marginalization of our students because that's what's happening and support them in their quest for excellence and direct them to the leading sectors in science, in life science, in entrepreneurship, in high finance, in economics, because we're not there. Second, we will have to mobilize our business allies and partners and foundation to develop and support mentorship programs in entrepreneurship and in higher education. Third, we are going to work with government to develop and support specific programs for black entrepreneurs. We've received, ever since we started the fund, the federal government has funded in the tone of $250 million for black entrepreneurship. I don't know if you're aware, but women and indigenous people in Canada fell in the same bucket. So when we mm. talk about systemic racism, it is, they fit into it as well. Because we are the International Women's Forum, I'm specifically interested in, in women in terms of the impact. And, and as a woman yourself living with all of this, it's not just racism that women face, but the double whammy of sexism as well. Any particular ways that you specifically target helping women overcome those barriers? Well, you know, luckily enough for, for the Black communities, entrepreneurship in the Black communities have, has no gender. 
And we are very happy to report that because there are a lot of strong women entrepreneurs in the black communities and they will have equal access to the fund and they will be supported. We are not making a difference between a male entrepreneur and a female entrepreneur because we are already there. Okay, so what we are trying to achieve here is to pull our people up for the creation of sustainable businesses. This is what's lacking. This is what's missing in the black communities. We have small businesses. We want to take them to next level. And we feel the best way to accomplish this is by establishing a base of black professionals to offer investment opportunities and guidance. And that's how we will achieve it. What's the benefit to everyone of addressing these issues that hold back so much potential and talent? Well, the benefit will be creating collective wealth. And the only way for a community to advance is by creating collective wealth. Granted, in the Black communities across Canada, we have our millionaires, we have our well-to-dos, we have all that. But everyone in their own rights have succeeded and they are living on their little island, right? So this, uh, for, for a community to have power, political power, economic power, whatever, and influence, you need to be a collective economic force. And this is what we are aiming at creating. What specific advice would you say to our listeners about what individuals can do who care about this and want to help? All we are asking for you is to be an ally, a close ally. And if you are working within an organization, look around you, you know, sponsor a young black female striving in your organization this is one thing that you can do. And outside organization, in, in, in businesses in general, you can serve as a mentor. We have a lot of Black organizations that are looking for qualified experts like our members. So I think if you do your homework properly, wherever you're located in the world, wherever you live, I believe that you, uh, you certainly, or we certainly can use your help. And what about people are listening who actually serve on corporate boards in terms of the way they can use their voices, perhaps to build on this momentum, that this moment of eye awakening to help their organizations really seize this moment and do something different? Yeah. If you are sitting on a board, what you can do, you can, number one, when the nomination committee is being created, you raise your hand. Okay, you raise your hand and you say, I want to be part of the nomination committee. And then when you are there, you force the headhunters putting in front of your candidates. They have to put women, women candidates. They have to put minority candidates for you to consider. And then you make your choice because people are not going to make the challenge for us. We have to force the challenge. And to force the change, you have to be part of the nomination process. And once you get on the board, in addition to being on that nominating committee, I mean, it takes courage when you are one of very few women, one of very few people of color in a male, white-dominated environment. It takes courage 
to continue to be the voice like, oh, there goes Madeline again, or oh, there goes Anne again. Yeah, it is. It takes a lot of courage. I've lived through different scenarios where I was on the board as the only female Black professional. And when you're there, you're kind of paralyzed because, you know, people around you are not used to you and you, you don't know really where to turn. So this is not a great situation. The second situation I was in, we were two. So what happened when you have two minorities on the board? What do they do? They compete against each other. Uh. <laughs> this is also not the best situation to have. So that's why we are suggesting that if you are nominating minorities on your board, you must have at least 30% of that minorities on that board. 30% and more. Keep going, yes. right? Yes. And finally, what is your advice to, to girls and young women and mothers and fathers who are raising our next generation of, of girls? Uh, what is your advice to them who are aspiring to follow in your very big footsteps? I, I strongly believe in to succeed, you, there are a couple of things that you need to have, like self-knowledge. You must know your strengths, your weaknesses, your values. Those are things that, you know, that you can make your own and play on them. As a black female professional, I never play on the black part of it. My fight was the fight with women. I never in a fight for black female because I, for a long time, I decided that, you know, I will side with the female fight because I know we will succeed. And when we succeed, we, we, all of us will succeed, whatever color we are, you know, and everything else. And, and it's true. So I think people must have self-knowledge. Second, you need to have a clear vision of your future. If you don't know where you're heading, if you don't have a career plan, it's not going to happen. So that vision, because if you cannot visualize yourself there, it will not happen. So you must have that vision. Then you have to seize all the opportunities, have the courage to seize all the opportunities, you know? And the reason why people don't do that, it's because we are specifically women. We are afraid to fail. But let me tell you, if you've never failed, you cannot succeed because that's the only way. That's the only way. So allow yourself to fail and fail and fail again. You know, so I'm inviting you to fail. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, and to get a sponsor, you know, every organization that I've worked for, I managed to have a sponsor. The sponsor is very different from a mentor. The sponsor is a person internally who is talking about you wherever they go. It's a powerful voice. Wherever they go, they will say, ah, did you know that Madeleine has done this and Madeleine has done that? So that's how you gather power internally when people are referring to your name. So that you have to, to do. Create your own board of directors. It will be your mentors. So I have five, you know, in different fields. Those people, seriously, and they've, they've been with me since the beginning of my career. And they are still wow. there. And I refer to them all the time. 
And what I do also, I don't seek power. I seek influence first. I am an influential person and power comes naturally afterwards. But if you do the opposite, you may never have the power. So work on being influential. Okay. And I love uh, it. Also be the best in your line of work, in your field. You know, if you ask me if I am one of the top 10 in credit risk management commercially, yes, I am. So you people need to have that conviction to succeed. Okay. So, and then the last thing I will ask, implore women, as you are climbing the ladder of success, always remember to bring somebody with you. I love it. This has been fantastic to talk to you. you. Madeline Fekir, I mean, your sisterhood, your passion, your courage, your vision, your leadership, all inspiring. Congratulations on the creation of the Black Opportunity Fund. We are with you. Thank you very much, Anne. It's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Changers, a monthly conversation with trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. We hope you'll join us again as we talk about life in leadership. I'm Ann Doyle. Thanks for joining us at Power Up Women. If you like this episode, my co-host Dana Harvey and I hope you will subscribe, share us with your network, and rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And Dana and I would love to hear from you through our Power Up Women Facebook group. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. So claim yours and put it to work.